Welcome to the She Built This podcast, where we are sharing the stories of professionals and entrepreneurs who are on a mission to create the new norm by following their dreams and making them a reality. I'm your host, Emily Aborn, and together we are inspiring, growing, and giving you the tools you need to bring ideas to life so you can build whatever this means for you. everyone and welcome back and of course if you're new here then welcome here and hello Um, just to fill you in if this is your first time listening I'm Emily Aborn and I'm a content writer as well as the host of this podcast and the owner and founder of She Built This an entrepreneurial community for women and when I say community because that's a little bit of an intangible word, here is what I mean. It is a group of 1,500 women connected globally who gather primarily online and uh, sometimes in New England when it's safe in person. We have a multitude of ways of getting involved with resources to help you grow your business from a standpoint of education, visibility opportunities, accountability, and just connecting with others who are in this same roller coaster ride along with you. Um, Essentially, the goal is to help you and take any overwhelm, loneliness, terror, and just that crazy making out of building your business. Because when we are out there pursuing our dreams and achieving our visions, it can sometimes feel like a lot, you know? It can sometimes be as much of a roller coaster ride as the holidays can seem like for some people. Um, Speaking of the holidays for a second, I don't usually get caught up in it all, but I realized that this year, even though I'm not getting caught up in it all, I still have a lot going on right now. And actually, Monday, December 20th, um, my husband was home from work and I felt that I had officially entered the holiday vortex. You know, that time in the middle of December until like, well, this year it's going to be until like January 3rd when we all just don't really know what day it is or what time it is. And you're just kind of like doing this, that and the other thing. So maybe that's you, maybe that's not you. Um, I'm kind of like in the throes of, you know, holiday prep and just picking up a couple last minute things here and there. And this year, during this week, this week where uh, Christmas is on Saturday, I didn't really take much of a break because I'm just kind of trying to wrap a lot of things up before um, the holiday actually comes. It seems like I got busier than ever right around this time with my content writing business, which is exciting. And as a result, I'm not really taking much of a break this week, but I'm going to do so uh, next week and not work all day Saturday and Sunday to catch up and simultaneously try to get ahead like I did last weekend. Um, So I tell you what, it has just been a little nuts in a good way. Lots of wrapping things up, presents too. So lots and lots of wrapping. Um, Speaking of the holidays, I am offering a holly jolly, okay, it's not really called that. There's a sale, let's just call it a sale, going on from December 24th to December 31st. And it's going to be on all levels of She Built This memberships, which means you can become an official She Built This member for just $4.25 cents a month. And that is going to get you a basic listing in our online searchable directory. So for just $4.25 a month, you can be part of a 
online searchable directory for women entrepreneurs, and you can upgrade to the elevated level and get in on all our workshops and our peer groups and access to a couple extra little perks for 17 bucks a month. And those prices are going to be good for as long as you decide to stay a member. And the best part is there is no code to remember, no code necessary. Just go learn more about it at shebuiltthis.org and then put it in your calendar to get it in before the end of the year. It's a write-off. Well, actually, you should ask your accountant about that, but pretty sure it's a write-off. It falls right into line with something like the Chamber of Commerce or something you would do for education or networking or marketing for your business. All right, without further ado, I felt on the fence about whether or not I was going to take this week off from doing a podcast because I knew a lot of people would be busy decking the halls, but I decided to do it. Because if you're like me, then you are driving for a little bit uh, around the holidays to visit family and you're going to need something to listen to on the way there. So I said, I will do this for the people that are driving. I will do it for the people. And I'm also really against missing a week. I think I have only done that like twice and both times it was because I was sick and it sounded like I had a goat in my throat not a frog, a goat. But I'm going to cut my usual jibber jabber short at this beginning and get right into today's episode because it's a really important topic and it's in line with the theme of December, which I've actually decided has been more of a smorgasbord than a theme because while I had every intention of December being stories of reflection, it's actually just kind of been a little bit all over the place. But so has the actual month of December. So there we go. See, I I intended to do that. Um, if you didn't get the chance to listen to the other episodes from this month, I kicked off the month with Deanna Seymour sharing about her entrepreneurial twists and turns that landed her where she is today. And then I did my own grab bag episode where I shared six tiny ideas to help you take a break from the hustle. And then we heard from 13-year-old entrepreneur Heidi Bell, who is making waves with her business as she gives back to save the planet and marine life that makes our world go round and round with healthy seas. And make sure that whatever podcast app you're using, you follow, subscribe, whatever it tells you to do. I just want to be sure that you are the first to know when these episodes come out every Wednesday, because next week, it's going to be just you and me reunited for our last episode of the year. And I am really excited about it. But today, we are hearing from Davy Shalasco on the topic of inclusion and what it looks like from a different lens. Back in September, we started a diversity, equity, and inclusion series with Ivor and Brianna Edmonds of Saga Healing, and we focused specifically in on the topic of racism. And if you are interested in going back and listening to that podcast with Ivor, um, it is, uh, I will put it in the show notes so that you can have that link as well. But that was a really great conversation. The topics and issues around inclusion have been something that I personally have really been taking time to look at this year and reflect on where I need to do some work with in myself and, and bringing in some experts who can help educate me in the areas that I have questions and I'm unclear in. And as Davey shares in this podcast, it really starts there. It starts with each and every single one of us taking a personal inventory and seeing where we need to step it up in order to make the impact that we want to make in this world. And I, I love how Davey talks about normal default standards not being quite good enough. Asking yourself, how do I avoid having a negative impact and and just stay neutral, that's not the question we need to be asking ourselves. We need to be asking ourselves, how can we do better than the norm, better than normal? 
creating the new norm, as I say in my intro. So part of the work that we did in the DEI workshop was working to create our company's own DEI statement And that is something that I am actively in the process of. And I encourage you to think about it and set the wheels in motion to do the same for yourself too. So probably probably my favorite part of today's interview with Davey is when Davey shares that our biggest opportunity to make an impact and the deepest impact is on the people we surround ourselves with every single day, your staff, your colleagues, your one-to-one customers and clients. The culture that we are building within our companies and in our businesses have a ripple effect and therefore the more that we can be informed and allow that information to drive our behaviors, the more we'll have different perspectives that can help us to shape our businesses, cultures, and the greater systems at large with more inclusion as we move forward. But it all starts with us. So hopefully this episode will help you to check in with yourself, take a little bit of a self-inventory, and see more clearly what inclusion really means and looks like. This conversation is one of many that I intend to have because as they so often do, it has left me with more to learn. So about Davey, uh, Davey is an educator, author, and consultant. Davey's passion is facilitating adult learning that supports organizational and systemic change for social justice. In addition to managing Think Again, Davey has authored several chapters in Teaching for Diversity and Social Justice and Readings for Diversity and Social Justice, including curricula on classism, ableism, and cissexism. Davey also teaches as an adjunct associate professor in social theories and trans studies at Smith College for Social Work. Davey has a master's in education in social justice education from UMass Amherst and has been writing and teaching about social justice issues since 2000. Without further ado, here is my interview with Davey Schlasko. Hi, Davey, and welcome to the She Built This podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to get into this conversation. Um, So I read your bio that you sent me prior to you hopping on, but I'd love to hear in your own words, and I always ask this question, um, who you are and what you do. Sure. So my name is Davey Schlasko. I'm the founder and director of Think Again Training and Consulting, which is a little consulting group um, focusing on diversity, equity, inclusion, and social justice issues. Um, Basically, we work with organizations and sometimes community groups to solidify their understanding of social justice principles and practices and then incorporate them into every part of what they're doing. And how did you, um, how did you get into the work that you do? What sort of, what journey have you been on that led you here? Well, it has not been a linear journey. So first of all, I started doing this work pretty unintentionally, basically as a teenager, um, because I was out as a queer teenager. And there was a thing in the 90s where some as they said then, gay teens would get recruited to do like um, personal experience panels where we would go tell our coming out story in five minutes or less, usually for high school teachers in some other school district to teach them how to be more gay friendly. Um, So I was doing some sort of inclusion training even before I knew that that was a thing that people did as a job. Um, 
And I was part of various peer education programs throughout high school and college. And then when I graduated and found the job market basically impossible to navigate as a trans person in 2002, um, I realized that some people do social justice education and get paid for it as a job. And so I went and did a master's degree in social justice education at UMass Amherst, um, where I learned a lot about the issues and directions and um, frameworks for thinking about social justice that had not been part of my experience before then. Um, and my focus in that program was always on community-based education with adults. I never wanted to be a classroom teacher, but I needed a job as soon as I graduated. And so I worked for about five years in nonprofit management, actually six or seven years, I guess, in nonprofit management in various kinds of human service and leadership development. And that whole time I was doing social justice related trainings as a side gig, like once in a while. Um, and a little bit as part of my day jobs, but I always had these day jobs where there was, you know, a, maybe 10% of what I did was trainings like that and the rest was other, other work. And then in around 2014, I became too ill with chronic Lyme disease to work a full-time job mm. and figured out that I could support myself by working way less than full-time doing consulting work. Um, if I lived pretty much anywhere else besides the Bay Area, which is where I lived at the time. So I moved back East both to get healthcare and to sort of launch, think again, or relaunch it as, a, as my main commitment. Um, with the intention that it would be a part-time job supporting just me. And very fortunately, my health improved and also really weird stuff started happening in this industry so that at this point, it is way more than a full-time job for me. And there's also a couple of dozen other people who mostly have day jobs and are co collaborating with me part-time on different projects. So wow. that, that's, that's how I got into it was totally accidentally. Yeah, that's a great story. Um, so I, I guess I am glad, so glad to hear that your health is better. I've heard a lot of people that have really challenging time um, working a full-time job or managing a business with, with chronic disease and Lyme is obviously pretty prevalent around mm -hmm. here. So that's great news. Um, what would you say like underlying everything that you do, underlying the mission of your work? What's the why behind what you do? Mm -hmm. I think at a really broad level, I think all people deserve to live good lives and lives that are not restricted by racism and classism and sexism and so on and so on. Um, and we all have an interest in all of us getting free from that stuff. Even when we're privileged in one area, we still have an interest in everyone getting free from these systems that limit our capacities, our abilities to have a good life. One way that people work on that is to be basically, is to be an activist separately from their day job. And that's totally great. And I'm glad that people do that. Part of what I'm really interested in is how we do that work 
integrated into the other work that we're already doing mm -hmm. so that we're not just like doing a job and then coming home and being an activist in the evenings, but that we're doing our job in a way that moves towards justice. Yeah, like so really helping people to integrate that into whatever field, whatever industry, whatever situation that they're in. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so for some people, they may not know what some of these words mean. So I'd love if you don't mind for us to just take a little bit of time and define some of the, the words that we hear often, but maybe aren't exactly entirely sure what they imply and how they show up like um, mm -hmm. classism, ableism, <laughs> cis sexism. Um, yeah, so just just different, different terms that we hear and we may not 100% be sure of what they are or who they impact. Great. Yeah. So the, the language of this is always interesting because my client organizations all come to me with different sort of favorite jargon than each other. And to me, the principles underlying my work are the same, no matter what words we're using for them. But very often I don't come in talking about classism or sexism because they don't know that word yet and it'll scare people away. Right. Um, all three of the words you mentioned, classism, ableism, and cissexism, are systems of oppression. And I would define all of them as a system that oppresses some people while privileging others, mm -hmm. both in ideological ways, in terms of who is more valued or respected as humans, and also in really practical ways, in terms of how structures are set up to work for some people and not for others. So more specifically, if we're talking about classism, first of all, class, socioeconomic cl class is not just about money, but is also about sort of relative social rank in terms of not only money, but also status and power and um, how different groups, culture and knowledge and networks are valued. All of those are part of class. And so classism is a system that oppresses people with less class privilege, poor people, working class people, blue collar people, however you define the different groups in a way that benefits wealthier people and especially the most wealthy and to lesser degrees, people who are somewhere in the middle, um, both in the sense that the system teaches us to consider some humans more valuable than others based on their class. And also that the system is set up to make life easier for some than others. Right. And in the US especially, class is so closely intertwined with race that I think we never productively talk about classism without also talking about racism. They're really just so entangled as part of what some people call racialized capitalism that you can't separate class from race very usefully. Do you think classism ties into these other two as well? Absolutely. I think they all tie into each other yeah. in basically every way. Um, and very often people who do this kind of training or education focused on race or even on disability or gender do talk about class in the sense of how it's entangled at a structural level, how, for example, disabled people or people with disabilities are more likely to be poor, are less likely to have full-time jobs, even if they can and want to do a full-time job. Um, 
And often trainers whose focus isn't on classism don't really grapple with classism at a more interpersonal level um, or at a more ideological level rather than the, the really structural and material stuff. So for an example, a lot of disability inclusion work is about making sure that disabled people or people with disabilities can do the most possible, right? Can can do a right. full-time job basically. Right. Without taking a step back and saying like, what if not everyone should do a full-time job? What if we can value people as humans, as contributors to society, as contributors to our community, even if they're not working a paid 40 hour a week job? Wouldn't that totally transform ableism? <laughs> but you have to transform classism to do that, right? So that's just one way in which they're really entangled. Yeah. Okay. I see that. Um, so what, like, I guess, I guess when you work with people, how do you help in the areas of DEI? Where do you sort of start with people? So we almost always start with an assessment to figure out where an organization is starting from. So we start where people are at, so to speak. Um, and that assessment is both about things that are obviously explicitly about equity and inclusion and diversity, um, stuff like how diverse is the staff, but also um, how, how satisfied are staff members with the climate in the organization? What is their experience once they're there? Not only are, is an organization able to recruit diverse staff members, but are they able to retain people? Um, we also look at how let me back up. The assessment is very complicated, so there's a lot of different pieces. We could get into that if you want, but the gist of it is we start with figuring out where people are at yep. and what their goals should be. And the goals and the, the ultimate goals, but especially the short-term goals, are not the same for every organization. We're not leading organizations through a single like patented process or something. It's figuring out what makes most sense for that particular organization, given where they're starting from in terms of DEI, but also what community they're in, the context of their industry, all of those different things. So um, let's let's talk about like a lot of the listeners of this podcast would be um, solopreneurs and or have very, very small teams. So what are some like, really tangible, like I, I know a lot of people say they want to create more inclusion with their business or in their business, but they don't exactly know how. Um, mm -hmm. So what are some like really tangible things that we can do to create inclusion, starting with ourselves, um, that branches out throughout our own businesses? Because I, I do believe that, you know, part of a reason for being an entrepreneur and being, creating your own business is so that you can make a bigger impact than just, you know, your take-home pay. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Well, I think the first thing to do is self-assess where you're at. And that, that's hard because you don't know what you don't know, right? But it really does start at the very beginning with what are you offering and who are you imagining your customers or clients will be? Mm -hmm. And very often people, there's, some, there's part of that that you do explicitly, right? Your customers are people with a particular need. Um, but what are the unarticulated assumptions about your customers. Who are you imagining as your customer? Very often you're imagining someone like you. So what about someone who's not like you? 
will they want what you're offering, right? Is what you're offering as broadly wanted, as broadly applicable as you imagine it is, um, depending on who you imagine your customer to be. Some really specific examples might be, it's, it's hard for me to think of examples as far as like products or services that tiny businesses offer. Um, we can, we can use, a, yeah, we can use a larger example. Um, that's fine. I think people can, you know, think through how to apply that to themselves. Okay. You know, okay. Here's, here's a pretty classic example. If you are, uh, if you run a tiny hair salon, right. Or if you're self-employed as a hairstylist and you want to be really inclusive of people of different races, well, first you have to make sure you're providing services that work for people's hair, right? right. And that's an incredibly basic thing that, that people seem not to think of. And my evidence that I think some people don't think of this is that in my neighborhood Facebook group, there's pretty regularly um, a hairdresser or a hairdresser in training who's posting that they have openings for low cost haircuts at a particular time. And then somebody says, well, do you know how to work with black hair? Or even do you know how to work with curly hair? And the people are like totally thrown off. Like that never occurred to them. Um, so just like, who do you imagine your potential customers are? Right. Um, in that same example, we can think about gender. Um, so very often haircuts especially are just so gendered. There is an assumption about what kind of haircuts women want and what kind of haircuts men want. Many hairdressers only do one or the other. If your hair is in between or neither of those things or not the one that somebody will guess by looking at you, um, then people kind of lose it. Like they just don't know how to interact. They get nervous and, and don't um, kind of lose all their customer service skills because they're surprised about who walked in the door wanting what, right? Yep. And then thinking about disability, which is the other example you asked me about in terms of definitions, the very same example, like what are you assuming about somebody's body? Are you assuming that they're able to sit still for 20 minutes? Are you assuming that they're able to walk upstairs? Are you assuming that they're able to get into your particular chair that's in your office, right? Um, are you assuming that they're able to sit under fluorescent lights for 20 minutes safely? All of those things um, are, not usually articulated because they're taken for granted. So the question is, what are the underlying assumptions of who you think you're going to serve? And then how can you figure out how to broaden that out as broad as you want it to be and as broad as it should be? And you can't try to be everything to everybody, right? So the goal for small businesses is not necessarily have a clientele that is exactly proportionate to the demographics of where you live. It's not, that's not necessarily realistic because you might not be providing something that's relevant to everybody. But the goal is to make sure that whoever it should be relevant to, whoever you want to be serving, you're able to serve equally well because you've thought ahead about what they're going to need. Yeah, so this, this kind of brings me to the elephant in the room, which is that my business name is She Built This. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, there's a lot of people listening that I know they have a pronoun in the name of their actual business. And 
I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. And you had, you had mentioned to me before we started hitting record that you work with a lot of organizations that are kind of in that same boat, like girls right now, for example, is mm-hmm. just one that pops into my mind. Um, yeah. So let's, let's talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think most small businesses that are explicitly gendered in that way are gendered for the best reason, which is that they're trying to counteract sexism in the world, right? Um, They're trying to make a space for women to do a thing that women aren't always invited to do, or that the spaces where people do that thing isn't always welcoming to women. Um, That makes perfect sense to me. But I want to back up and and ask that question of, of who is this really for? And then however broadly you mean it, make sure that's reflected in your communication. Mm -hmm. So if what you mean is literally people who identify as women, that's their gender identity, that's okay. I'm kind of curious why, like why that's the operative category, but if it is, okay, that's fine. Um, If your category is people who use she, her pronouns, who would include cisgender women and transgender women and possibly some non-binary people too, Again, I'm not super sure why that's the operative category, but if it is, okay, that makes sense. Um, If on the other hand, say you're one of those businesses that's making some new ecologically conscious menstrual product, right? In that case, I would hope that your target audience is everyone who menstruates. Most people who menstruate use she, her pronouns, but not everybody. And it does... I mean, as a trans person, it it feels like a cop-out and like not actually a best practice to first name an organization something explicitly gendered in, in one direction um, and, then, and then try to like backtrack or retrofit messaging to say, oh, but we mean you too, right? Well, well I think not only is it um, not a best practice, I think in certain cases, um, For example, I wouldn't be equipped to make the space necessarily for making sure everyone felt safe or what they needed to feel. You know what I mean? Like maybe I can Mm -hmm. do that in a one-on-one setting, but in a group setting, am I really ready to do that? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I think think there's a level of responsibility as well. As you said, it's not just, it's not like backtracking and and then saying, oh, well, we mean you too. I think there's a level of responsibility as well when we say, oh, we mean you too. Like, what does that really mean? Such a great point. Yeah. Ideally, we want to be building institutions. And by institutions, I mean anything as small as a one person business is, among other things, an institution, right? It has policies, it has structures, maybe it has a building. We want to be building every piece of that structure with the whole broad range of people in mind who might ever be part of that structure. And typically that's not what we're doing. Typically we're backtracking and trying to retrofit. Yeah, yeah. Um, The other thing that stands out to me in what you just said is that many people, especially around transgender inclusion, many people contact me about their marketing and language and wanting to make sure they're using inclusive language. And I think that should actually be the last thing that you're working on making inclusive, because to your point, you don't want to market so successfully that trans people are like, that is an inclusive and friendly business. And then they show up and nobody knows how to serve them well. 
Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Hmm. All right. This is, this is good to think about. So I think like if I, to sum it up, it's, it's all about asking yourself, why, why is that the target market of your business? Why is that who you're serving and really getting clear on that for yourself before you take that next step? Right. Absolutely. And I, I think many people, if they don't have a lot of familiarity with trans communities might have a hard time describing a target demographic that's gendered in a more inclusive way. So for one example, I mentioned earlier, I've worked with a lot of girls' schools and women's colleges. And the question to me is, is this a school for girls because you think that there's something unique about everyone who identifies as a girl, that they need some particular educational environment that no one else needs? Or is it because you want to make a space for people who have been excluded from other similar educational institutions based on their gender. And in that case, that's your target demographic, right? People who have been excluded from services like this because of their gender. Right. And then you do the work to figure out who that includes, which I would think includes girls, including cisgender girls and trans girls, also many non-binary people, maybe also trans boys and so on. And then it becomes a matter of eliminating that word girls from maybe their business name, if that's a part of it. In many cases. Yeah. Yeah. So on a kind of like uh, individual level, what are things that we can do to help be catalysts for change and to be um, you used a great word at the beginning advocates that you said something better than advocates, but that's what is coming up for me. I can't remember the word I used. But yeah, so what can we do? I mean, first of all, I think educating ourselves is really important. I think in every every stage of planning and developing an organization, even if it's a one-person organization, thinking through what do I know and what do I don't know about who might be part of this in the future as customers, as staff members, um, and in every possible role. And how do I build something that's going to work for the widest possible range of people in every possible way? I also think about, you know, every organization has its purpose in the world. And no matter how dedicated we are to our purpose in the world, a, a good friend of mine once told me it's, it's likely no matter what your goal is, that your biggest impact is going to be on each other as colleagues. Hmm. And so if our goal is, if we're a landscaping business and our goal is making beautiful gardens, we will probably do that, but it's likely that the deepest impact we have is not going to be on any customer or on anyone who sees any of the gardens, but on the people we work with day to day and minute to minute. And so thinking about equity, inclusion, and social justice internally in terms of how we interact with each other as staff, in terms of personnel policies, um, in terms of the, the culture and climate that we build together in that, in that human network, that does have a, a, a ripple effect because the more that you're really deeply inclusive as a staff, as a team, the more that you will have different perspectives informing planning about services and programs um, and, and products that you offer. 
so they 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 are intertwined but i'd say for the most part small businesses need to start internally um even before thinking about i don't know about before it kind of all happens at once <laughs> do, do you have any uh i'm sure you do um do you have any great resources that you can recommend for people to get started maybe maybe like a one in, in a various form so that, you know, some people are readers, some people are audio. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it really depends to be honest. So talking about trans inclusion in particular, there are a number of books about trans inclusion in workplaces, and I found most of them to be pretty bad. Yeah. So actually, I think a lot of this, there isn't like a checklist or just a video to watch or something that will teach you it it actually is a process that you have to go through of figuring it out within yourself. Mm. Um, I wrote a book that I think is helpful that is really about individual level allyship behaviors with, for people who want to be in allyship with trans communities. And it's called Trans Allyship Workbook. I think that's a, a really good starting place for most people around that. In terms of disability, there is a, book that you can order in print or online called Skin, Tooth, and Bones. It's a, a primer on disability justice that's written and produced by an organization out of San Francisco called Sins Invalid. Um, and that really puts a deeply intersectional and, and broad understanding of how disability justice is really not only about people, individuals with disability or who consider themselves disabled, but is about how we value all minds and bodies in all of their strengths and weaknesses. Um, that's a, I think, really powerful and in inspiring resource. Um, and also people will wanna follow up with more practical pieces about, yeah, but what do I do then if my building doesn't have a ramp or something like that, right? Um, so those are all the practical resources need to come next, but just understanding um, disability justice as a framework, that's a really great place to start. I think you're really, you really hit the nail on the head with that. Um, so we recently had a panel event and Tina Hurley, who is the founder of Less Leg, More Heart, she has a really beautiful story about going from a really... Um, like a gymnast, an athlete, um, just like kind of one of those people that could, could do it all physically. And she lost her leg and she said she felt like she wasn't a person anymore. And I think mm -hmm. that our, like, you know, our society, our culture really does, um, favor ableism. And, and so when people are in that position, not only do people around them maybe treat them differently, but they also feel differently in and of themselves. And so mm -hmm. I think, yeah, that's really, really important work. I know we kind of went off on a tangent with that, but that would be a great resource. So I'll make sure I put both of those in the show notes so that people can find them. Great. Um, um, that, the story you just told reminds me of a piece that, that also kind of responds to your question about how do we um, be better catalysts for change as small businesses. Um, and I think you, you really said it when you said the society around us encourages ableism, right? So I think a lot of people maybe start with like, I'm a good person and I want to be inclusive. So obviously I'll end up building something inclusive. 
But actually, I think that positive intention is rarely enough. And all that's needed for inequity and inequality to happen is to just do the default, to just do things the way they've always been done, or to just let our thinking uh, run forward without us in a, in a way that's not necessarily very mindful, um, just following our own instincts, right? Which are not following our instincts is not a bad thing, but our instincts are shaped by everything around us, including systems of ableism mm -hmm. and systems of transphobia and sexism and systems of classism and racism and on and on. So there's a, the processes that we need in order to make sure we're having a positive impact is not just to avoid having a particularly negative impact, but to really examine in what ways are the supposedly neutral or default ways of doing things actually not having a neutral or, or equitable impact, right? Yeah. So here's one example um, from a, a, a business standpoint. There's a, a practice that's considered a good practice of benchmarking wages to the prevailing wage in your area. So if you're hiring someone into a particular role, you wanna hire them at a wage that's standard for that kind of job in the place where you are. That's better than having no benchmark probably, but the prevailing wages or the wages that are considered normal or standard for different kinds of jobs didn't get that way by accident or at random, they got that way based on centuries of race and gender segregation in the workforce, right? So um, this example is relevant for bigger businesses, but I think it really clarifies the point um, in a way that would be relevant for anyone that uh, some colleges that I've worked with have two different job titles of housekeeper and janitor. They have very similar duties, but in different kinds of buildings. Housekeepers work in dorms mostly and janitors work in more public buildings, right? And they have pretty different wages from each other because historically housekeepers have been women and janitors have been men. So if you're hiring a housekeeper and benchmarking your wages to the prevailing wage, you're gonna be reproducing that, that wage gap, that gendered wage gap, right? Just simply by doing the default or doing what's normal. So instead of that, we really need to look and say, okay, is what's normal actually okay? Or how can I do better than normal, right? Yeah. It's a, it's, I mean, this is super cliche, but if you keep doing what you've always done, you're always going to get what you've always gotten. And I think it's our entire society right now is being asked to, you know, like our brains go down these neural pathways where they, they repeat the same thoughts and they repeat the same actions again and again and again, because it's easy. And I think we're kind of in that situation right now as a society where it's like, we know we need to create these new societal pathways and it's not the easiest choice. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, all right. So just to wrap up, I would love to hear if you, I mean, you have a soapbox right now. So if I put you <laughs> up on the soapbox, what is like one thing that you just kind of wish everybody could really let sink in and, and start applying in their own lives today? Mm. Hmm. Can I have two things? Sure. <laughs> so one thing is with regard to what most organizations call DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion or social justice work, very often a thing that gets in our way 
is a, a sense of what's reasonable or what's um, realistic. I think it is, I think that part of the reasons we have a sense of what is or isn't realistic is because we have been programmed within these systems that tell us that that total justice is not realistic, right? I want us to push past those barriers, those, those limiting beliefs that it can never be really fair or some inequality is always gonna be, there's always gonna be some poverty, right? But what if there isn't? What if there doesn't have to be? What if we can actually do things way more fairly than we've ever imagined? I, I like that a lot. Um, is that, that, did you say two or was that just your first one? That was just my first one. Okay, okay. My, my second one is about accountability that um, very often we will not be our own best educators on these issues, that we really need to bring in perspectives not like our own. And I, I think often in business, there's a sense that who I'm accountable to is the business owner or who I'm accountable to is my customers if I'm the business owner, right? I want to think about my accountability as the entire community that I work in. I'm accountable to the community I work in and my business, no matter what it is, even if it's a business that's not obviously related to inclusion or diversity in any way, part of my accountability to the community is that I'm making things better and not worse. Right. And how will I know if I'm making things better or not worse? I need to find tools and relationships to double check that, right? How am I gonna double check? Am I accidentally doing something racist while I'm trying to do something anti-classist, right? Or how am I gonna double check? Is my effort to include people with disabilities or who identify as disabled actually landing the way I expect it to land? That can happen through some formal tools like doing a survey of your customers or something. It can also happen through relationships like who are you in genuine relationships of accountability where they are safe to tell you when you have screwed up, right? Yeah, that's a really, really good one. And I think it's really important for people to keep that in mind as they get started doing this, you know, because it, I think educating yourself is, is fantastic, but you're right. It's like, who's holding you accountable to what you're learning and implementing? Mm -hmm. Um, all right. So why don't you let folks, because I think you would be a great example of somebody who could help to hold a business owner accountable or an organization. So why don't you share how we can find and connect with you online and maybe some of the services that you would offer? Mm -hmm. So the best way to connect with us online is at the website, thinkagaintraining.com. We're also on Facebook as Think Again Training and on Instagram as Think Again underscore TC. Um, in terms of services that we offer, we do assessment that can be very small, like just a pre-training, what do you need to learn assessment, all the way up to a several months long, pretty deep organizational assessment. Um, we can also review and revise policies, and we can give guidance on inclusive language for pretty much any document, whether external facing or internal. And then, of course, a lot of what we do, particularly with smaller organizations, is training. And that can be a training for all staff, or it can be more targeted trainings. Our trainings are focused on 
tools that people can use to actually do things more equitably rather than on mostly understanding. So we don't usually do trainings on like the history of racism, for example, but we mm -hmm. do trainings on what are some tools that you can use to do the work you already do in a way that's anti-racist. Um, sometimes some history is part of that certainly, but it's not awareness training. And I say that partly because I think, you know, this year because of uh, the growing strength of the Black Lives Matter movement, because of that once again, a bright light has been shown on police misconduct and police violence against black people. Um, because of all that, there's a lot of people really eager to do DEI work and sometimes um, sort of rushing to do anything uh, and not necessarily look at what's gonna work. Um, one example of this is, is what many people call bias training. Like we're gonna do bias training and then we won't be biased anymore, right? But there's a whole body of research showing that just learning about how bias works does not change people's bias or their behavior. Mm. So we don't do training about bias. Like it's not like taking a class about how to understand social justice. What we do is training in tools that you can use individual tools and organizational tools to do what you're doing in a way that points towards social justice. Wow. You're, you're really, this is impressive and amazing. And, um, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And thank you for being a guest. And I will be sure to put all of those links in the notes so that everybody can, can access them too easily. Great. All right. Thank you, Davey. To learn more about She Built This and to join our community and get involved for yourself, visit www.shebuiltthis.org.